Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Fascinating results in last night's primaries in North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Idaho, uh, a couple of other places. Um, lots of cross currents, both in the Democratic and in the Republican parties. Uh, so we'll just try to unpack some of that. The first thing to be pointed out, which is not the first thing other people are pointing out, but it's the first thing I think we need to point out is that the in Pennsylvania, which was the obviously the most uh, the, the highest profile uh set of races last night because he had a, a gubernatorial primary in the republican party uh and a senate primary in the republic and, and in the democratic parties but i guess the in the in the democratic parties the um the conclusions were foregone that uh futterman was going to win the um the senate primary and that josh shapiro was going to win the gubernatorial primary uh and I guess it was a uh, it was it was totally predictable who was going to win the Republican primary for governor. But of course, there is this barn burner of a race right now with two thousand votes separating them between um, between Doctor Oz and uh, David McCormick of um, of BlackRock. The key here is that the turnout, particularly on the Republican side, was insane. Insane, a million two in a primary, in an off-year election. And I think the Democrats had a million one. And the Democrats didn't even have a real race. Like they didn't, you know, in neither of those, in neither of those races. Um, Noah, what do, you, what do you make of this? Yeah, it's not just Pennsylvania, but it was uh, Oregon. And um, I think Kentucky and North Carolina to a lesser degree. But Democratic turnout way outpaced 2018 um democratic or republican turnout democratic republican turnout also significantly outpaced 2018 but you would expect that from a year in which they have tailwinds um democrats (laughs) outpaced their performance from ohio which leaves ohio and um i believe nebraska which leaves some to conclude that in a post dobbs environment that the democratic electorate is much more engaged than they were previously so um, this, of course, you know, raises all sorts of interesting questions about November, which is what all this portends. You know, does this mean that uh, Democrats have um, have a sufficiently powerful turnout machine to um, take some of the lack of enthusiasm, the numbers that we've seen? in you know with republicans wildly more enthusiastic to vote in november than democrats yeah but um you know i don't know you if you can generate this kind of turnout in a primary maybe you're really good at generating turnout and you can do it in the general and maybe democrats can limit their losses to some degree if they if they are showing that they have a secret sauce to pull some of that off a lot of it, I think, will depend on how the summer goes, both with the economy, with inflation, because people are going to feel, I mean, everyone's feeling inflation right now, but when you want to go on a road trip with your family or you want to have a barbecue with your friends and everything costs more, that that's going to be something that people feel more in the summer, as well as the families who've had to forego the kinds of vacations or summer camps or things they can't now afford for their own kids and their own families. That's one thing. But the other thing is, and a memo just came out from from uh, the the uh, government yesterday, I believe, uh, there could be a lot of protests again in summer of violence. There could be a repeat of what we saw two summers ago, and that will not help Democrats. That will not help Democrats if Biden is in charge. He's been downplaying, you know, the the pro the little bit of protest, particularly the protests on uh, outside justices' homes. Uh, they've downplayed that. That's the tack they took. If if things flare up again this summer when that decision comes down, usually the court issues those decisions in June. That could be a problem for Democrats, I think, going into the election in the fall. But it could well, also get them engaged. No. Yeah. And I, I don't want to. Yeah, move, I mean, it could. Yeah. Let's not move away from primary results just yet. But if we want to talk about this memo, 
like apparently one of the it, well, we it should say the memo violence. was written by an unclassified Department of Homeland yeah. Security memo came uh, uh, dated May 13th, um, which warns that uh, the pro-life side is where you can expect violence, because typically that's where violence comes from. And also, quote, the perception of wanting to, quote, save white children and fight white genocide is in this memo as a it's ridiculous. For violence. Yeah. No, we need to talk about this a little bit, because what we know about what's coming uh, so far is that the decision is going to favor the pro-life side. We, we have no indication that the draft opinion that we saw, that the majority represented by the draft opinion has shifted in any way, shape or form, you know, since the leak. Why would the pro-life side start? killing people uh, yeah i'm reminded of just before the last election last presidential election when in dc all the barricades and boards went up again downtown and i'm like and everyone's like yeah it's all that right-wing violence i'm like here in dc it's they're not boarding up because of the right wing being violent it's if trump wins the left is going to trash this town and that was the fear and you know then he lost and all the boards came down well generally the left is better at mass violence and the right is better at discriminate cases of terroristic individual violence but what why would an individual what, what, crazy person what a great what what a great set of skills. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, go uh, ahead. Sorry. Um, yeah. But I mean, nevertheless, why, how, uh, why would a crazy person do something crazy? I don't know. Crazy right. people do crazy things. Well, what, uh, look, the, cent- the central point is that if DHS is putting out a memo, they're talking about movements. They're right They're They're saying, uh, you know, there are indications that there could be violence in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. And then they default to their favorite thing, which is say, oh, you know, there's white privilege, white supremacy and all this. When logic says that who's out there at Supreme Court justice as who's been who who's been on Twitter saying things like it's good that they be scared. Everybody should be scared, you know. And so if you're going to write a memo on this. Uh, aren't you actually supposed to deal with the threats that are present and not the threats that are not present? Am I missing something? Like the threat that is present right now is from the left. It's from abortion rights advocates or, you know, not, that's not fair, but, you know, if people who align themselves uh, with abortion on demand, there is no threat from pro-lifers. Well, lifers are happy f- f- with what they've heard so far. I'll just say to tag on to what Christine was saying about the 2020 election. So, yeah, they, they, they were putting up barricades um, in fear of what the left would do uh, if Trump won. Then Trump lost. The barricades came down. And then January 6th did happen on the right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So who knows? Who knows? I mean, this is this is the problem with the with the escalating, you know, sort of arms race of activism and terror here. It's why, yeah, it's exactly why political leaders should condemn it no matter who's initiating. It should be equally condemned as not the way our democracy should be functioning to solve complicated problems. Um, so am I right that, you know, this turnout thing is is really, you know, the important takeaway or am I really missing the fact that, you know, I, I just don't think you can draw that many lessons from Madison Cawthorn's defeat. And on the other hand, uh, Mastriano's win in Pennsylvania, you know, there are MAGA wins. I'm going to push back on you there. I think you can draw some real lessons from the volume of uh, MAGA types, MAGA adjacent types, not even talking about Trump endorsements, although that's a mixed bag for him this cycle, at least last night. But last night's results um, suggests that, listen, Doug Mastriano, is an absolute radical. Uh, he's the gubernatorial nominee in Pennsylvania for the Republican side. He was on Capitol grounds on January 6th. He has supporters around him talking about the electoral college votes of the state he may uh, govern as though that's the chief priority of the governor of Pennsylvania, which is really ominous and weird. Um, Bo Hines in North Carolina is this 26-year-old sort of weirdo. And another insurrectionist, Joe Ray Perkins in Oregon, uh, also likely uh, emerging as the Republican Senate nominee in Oregon. Um, and I think Ted Budd is who's the national, who's a na- North Carolina uh, Senate nominee on the GOP side is sort of hard to classify in that sense. He sort of has a pedigree that would make him a little bit more normal. But those are the MAGA type wins. Losses, Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania, 
Janice McGreechan in Idaho, Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina, Brian Smith, who was trying to primary Republican, Stan Pullman, who didn't even register in, uh, in, in Oregon and was trying to be this very MAGA candidate. A lot of losses on the MAGA side, the uh, real revisionist, let's, let's redo 2020 again side, um, which would have energized and motivated the Democratic electorate, and they don't get that opportunity. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I heard the other day on on All Things Considered on NPR, they did like a five minute segment on Janice McGreechan in Idaho running against primarying the sitting governor, Governor Little. She's the lieutenant governor. But the, in that state, the lieutenant governor is an independent off or, you know, voted on independently. And she spent, you know, much of the last uh, two years bedeviling him and like trying to raise desperately trying to raise her profile. She like. Uh, when he was out of state for a couple of days, she announced she was sending the Idaho National Guard to the Mexican border to prevent people from coming in. She wrote some executive order, you know, making it illegal to for any store to ask anybody to put on a mask, that kind of thing. And then he came back and had to sort of revoke all of her orders. Um, and, you know, there was a real question uh, in the minds of you know, sort of a question leaning toward a de desperate hope minds of sort of certain types of liberal commentators that, you know, Jan that that McGreechan was going to win and this was going to show that the Republican Party had now really crossed the line into insanity because they had this popular governor who was a total hardline conservative, but not, you know, a lunatic and that the lunatics were going to run the asylum and I, I i think he crushed her i'm not I, I haven't seen the final numbers but um uh you know so but but some of what we've been hearing in this oh maga is really coming now is the is the unspoken wish of Democrats and liberals that the republican party oh. embrace its embrace the mania to the greatest extent it's, possible. I'm going to interrupt to say that point is really important because it's not unspoken. Look what they uh, Democrats propped up with almost to the tune of like over eight hundred thousand dollars worth of television ad buys in Pennsylvania. Mastriano's candidacy. They wanted the crazy MAGA guy. They support they 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 were throwing money at the Republican candidate. This is the party that tells us democracy is at risk from these people, yet they're desperately trying to get this guy elected because obviously he'll be the crazy person in the race and their guy will win. It's just politics. But if you truly believe d democracy is under existential threat from the MAGAs, why would you do that? Like it's just, it. so I don't think it's unspoken at all. I think they're eager for that battle again because that's all they've got. But that of course is the, um, they're following a playbook, right? They're following this playbook that Claire McCaskill used in particular in Missouri uh, to win her race by empowering Todd Akin uh, in the Senate race in 2012. I think it yes. was 2012. Okay. And then Harry Reid did the same with, with Karen, with Sharon Angle in, in Nevada. And uh, the thing is that um, those guys were just lunatics Right. I mean, they were lunatics or they said crazy things. And so, you know, you empower them and then you say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the more moderate. But as, as Christine says, the idea here is these people represent an existential threat to our democracy. So the last thing you want to do is empower them, because it's not like Mastrano doesn't have a shot. You know what I mean? Like, no, they're real, they're going to get someone like that and then go, how could this have happened? Democracy is under threat. But then that is going to ring. Not true. I mean, they did the same thing with Trump, to be honest. There right. was like there the the. It, they're going to learn this lesson the hard way again, I suppose, if Mastriano wins. Well, I mean, so let's talk about this question of Mastriano winning. Here's what's interesting about Pennsylvania. So um, Mastriano is a is a very radical guy and he is going and he is uh, going to be running against a moderate Orthodox Jew, uh, Josh Shapiro, uh, who I think is the lieutenant governor. Um, uh, who is AG, I think uh, AG. I'm sorry. That's right. Who is, um, you know, sound nerdy, you know, very well liked one in an overwhelming landslide. Like basically once he was in the race, he, it was his to take, um, you know, a Joe Lieberman type in the sense that he, uh, is inoffensive to some extent to, you know, to, to independence and people on the other side, 
to being well liked. And then you have Mastriano, who is a very, very radical candidate, right? So, and then you have this Senate question, which is you have uh, Oz, who is taking on whatever ideological coloration he wants, and then uh, Dave McCormick, who, you know, is basically a kind of classic Bush Republican who then started talking uh, Trumpish, wants to be Glenn Youngkin, um, but they're going to have to run together. And and so you have a very interesting cross current, which is you're going to have this radical. It's not that if you're the governor, you're at the top of the ticket. It's not clear who is at the top of the ticket. But, you know, it, let's say McCormick is the candidate as the Senate in the Senate running against this very interesting, very uncategorizable left wing populist, interesting guy, Futterman. He's going to have to run with Mastriano. Mastriano is like is going to have trouble with Shapiro and on his own. But like Christine says, if there's a summer of violence on abortion, if the inf- you know, if, if gas is eight dollars a gallon, if inflation rises above 10 percent, who the hell knows? Um, these are just very interesting cross currents, you know, and like if you enjoy politics as a spectator sport, which I know people claim you're not supposed to do. This is going to be a fantastic year. I mean, just it's really interesting. You know, um, any number of 10 or 20 or 50 different combinations of things can happen here. There can be a huge wave that will carry all sorts of people in, including if there's a huge wave, it could carry Mastriano in. Or you could see something like a guy like Josh Shapiro uh, avoiding the way avoid you know being so popular and so uh, un, and and so inoffensive to moderates that he prevails but then you give the vote to the senate democrat or something like that things like that could happen all across the country in a, in a way that hasn't happened in a while where people split tickets uh in that way um any any thoughts well republicans split their ticket um <clears throat> so ticket splitting isn't entirely dead at least on the republican side we can assume some of those are general election voters. There was um, leaked numbers from the DCCC, which conducted its own generic ballot polling, which is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So they only do House races. Um, but they, they found something to the tune. I think it was 47-39 in favor of Republicans. Yes, it was 47. It was an eight-point advantage for Republicans. And Republicans usually have a built-in a deficit in a general election or general generic ballot rather. So you can expect something along the lines of a 10 point preference, which is way outside of what, uh, you know, public polling. Suggests. Oh, but it's worse. It's worse. I mean, you're, what you indicate there is right, but it's worse because they limited their polling to battleground districts. Battleground so districts I say right. the 50 to 70 districts where there might actually be a competitive race. And if Republicans are up nine points, eight or nine points, yeah in may then the game is already up because the those numbers when you have national numbers which is where you see these numbers where it says that it's tied right that it's people say generically they'll vote for the democrat or the republican 46 46 something like that that's across the country and most of those people are voting in districts or going to vote in districts that are not particularly competitive yeah. So if you already talked about on... Sean Patrick Maloney, who's the D trip chair, yeah. uh, who said he's publicly primary Mondaire Jones, which has opened up all these racial racial fissures within the caucus and already, you know, some simmering tensions with Sean Patrick Maloney that serves as sort of a proxy to air those tensions. But how can you serve the you know, the line is how can you serve as the chair of the D triple C and your whole job is to shore up incumbents when you're engaged in a primary battle against one of your incumbents? But you're also an incumbent. I mean, the interesting thing is that nobody would say boo about Sean Patrick Maloney running. He actually the district that he is going to run in is the district that he lives in. Um, It's not like they they moved him out of his you know, they 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 did what they often do, which is that they redesign redesigned something to push somebody out of the district. The new map places Sean Patrick Maloney's residence in the same district as Mondaire Jones who is a one-term or two-term congressman. He's a 10-term, I don't know what he is. He's an eight-term congressman or something like that. Why can't he run again in his own district? And the answer is implicitly because he's white. Because he's white, Mondaire Jones is black, and he shouldn't be primarying a black person. But they, but it's 
it's only Mondaire Jones's district because it has the same number. Every district in New York State, according to this redistricting, is a little different. And if Sean Patrick Maloney lives in the district, what is he supposed to do? Like take one for the team, take a bullet for the team. He's also running the re-election campaign. How would it look if he announced that he wasn't himself running for re-election? He's running the national fundraising arm of the Democratic re-election well, campaign. The racial politics of this of, of the the midterm elections are fascinating on on both sides. I mean, for the Democrats, the other you know one of the interesting numbers to come out of Fetterman's uh, win uh, in in Pennsylvania is how little he drew uh, the black Democratic voter in uh, urban areas, particularly Philadelphia. They did not vote for him. He was came in like second or third. Like he he was not their preference for for he was not their choice. Meanwhile, in, among the GOP, I mean, if you add up who like the Oz and Barnett voters, uh, I think it was Yasha Monk or someone pointed out on social media that, um, you know, it, a majority of the primary voters in Pennsylvania who vote Republicans supported either a Muslim guy or a black woman. So it's like, so a lot of the, I mean, the way- Well, that's that the, replacement these, theory, Christine. I mean, they want to replace white men <laughs> with black women and Muslims. That's, and, that's, 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 that's the, uh, that's Pennsylvania Republican replacement theory at play. Exactly. But yeah. it, again, it just does show how complicated these things yes, are precisely. and how and how the vulgarity of the political class at seeking to look, we, we believe in Occam's razor. We spent all day yesterday talking about Occam's razor. Occam's razor is the simplest, you know, not the simplest explanation, but the 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 most straight line explanation or something is usually right. There is no straight line here. That's, I think, the point. McCormick, if McCormick ends up winning, and he may well not, because right now Oz is ahead by 2,500 votes, and the question is how many outstanding mail-in ballots are there and where are they going to be counted and all of that. He's threading a needle between two, I mean, not that Oz, it's odd because, I, I mean, Oz is a big television personality, so he doesn't read as a, you know, he doesn't read as a as a Muslim, let's say, because in some fashion, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know how many that was uh, 56% of the vote or something like that for the two of them. I mean, it's abs- it's insane that he got that much vote just because he can't serve in the U.S. Senate. He can't. He's a dual citizen of Turkey. He said he wouldn't take intelligence briefings, so he can't sit on, cl- on closed intelligence briefings. He can't serve in his role. Well, who's going to stop him? The voters, that's for the voters of Pennsylvania to decide. Actually, the, uh, the the Republican conference in the in the Senate can do quite a lot to sideline this member. Well, and they, they can sideline him, but they can't. You know, it's the they voters of Pennsylvania who get yeah. to make this get to make this decision. It will actually be. Can. I mean, they have the power to eject if they wanted to. They're not yeah, going to, but they can and they can do quite a lot to neutralize him as a representative of Pennsylvania's voters. Look, Pennsylvania is the. Easily the most interesting state for 2022 because it has these races and because it is a Obama to Trump to Biden state um, and understanding where it, where it sits ideologically after 2022 is going to be very instructive. If somehow the Democrats can avoid a reckoning in Pennsylvania because of candidate problems on the, you know, on the Republican side and because of the strength of the candidates that they recruited on their side, there's going to be a lesson there. I mean, it's not necessarily a lesson that national Democrats are going to learn, but, um, you know, uh, Futterman was not the obvious person to be the nominee here because Connor, Connor Lamb, the congressman who won a special election in 2017, that was the harbinger, one of the harbingers of the Democratic comeback after Trump's victory was the obvious candidate look good, moderate, you know, look good. he had like 400 endorsements, right? To Fetterman's like 15. But Fetterman is one of those X factor. The Democrats don't have them too often. You know, he's like one of those X factor candidates. He's fascinating. He's That's six foot nine. You know, he's he's uh, you know, he walks around in those shorts. He's very charismatic. He's you know, he's sort of like a combination of Jesse Ventura and Bernie Sanders. I don't know what to make of it. Like, but that, no wonder, no wonder he blew Connor Lamb out of the water. Like, Connor Lamb is very generic and dull, like a generic 
test tube Democratic moderate created in a lab to win a special election. But that's why. So where Pennsylvania ends up ideologically will be interesting and telling if the voters make their decision based on ideology. Um, If it's about spectacle and personality um, or um, being repulsed by the other personality, um, as I think there's a lot of reason to believe it has been in recent elections, we still don't know where anyone sits ideologically. Or, 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 or perhaps it means that that ideology simply takes a back seat. I mean, we've t- we haven't talking a lot about MAGA. But we haven't talked about the squad's performance, squad type, squad adjacent, justice Democrats types, because they had a mixed bag last night too. Um, Jamie McLeod Skinner uh, successfully primaried sitting a sitting Democratic representative in um, Oregon, um, and he was this sort of moderate figure in democratic politics and he was absolutely trounced by like 30 points now uh, mcleod skinner uh is sort of this very skinny wafy white woman bespectacled white woman she looks like a college professor she looks like she's a she looks like elizabeth warren and she she's got a warren type uh pedigree but more to the to the squad's racial politics they didn't have a good night last night at atisha scott in uh, Kentucky was a favorite of the Justice Democrats, a real anti-police figure, made made policing reform, police accountability, according to the New York Times, central to her campaign. She lost Nadia Alam in North Carolina, um, who seemed to be running for Congress in order to anathematize Israel, lost. Um, One of the few figures who seems to have emerged uh, on the side of, uh, on the victory side for Justice Democrats this woman named Summer Lee who's running in a very blue district in Pennsylvania. Um, so if it's if she wins, then it's her it's her race to lose and she'll likely find herself in Congress. She's on, she's up by about 500 votes and that's likely headed for a recount. But she's ahead. And Justice Democrats are screaming her name. They are celebrating her victory uh, because it's one of the only victories they had um, about a week ago. She wrote the following. When I hear American Pauls refuse, use the refrain, Israel has the right to defend itself in response to undeniable atrocities on a marginalized population, I can't help but think of how the West has always justified indiscriminate, disproportionate force and power on weakened and marginalized people. Um, Justice Democrats seem to want to make Israel into a signature issue in 2022, only to their detriment. Well, the squad is introducing, we should mention, they've introduced this piece of legislation for Nakba recognition, a resolution that was submitted by Rashida Tlaib um, to establish, you know, uh, to basically to scold Israel for the fact that there are Palestinian refugees. Um, It's ridiculous. It's, you know, this idea that this was something that suffered only by the Palestinians during uh, partition is uh, totally uh, memory holds the fact that there were what almost a million Jews who were expelled from the same area that were all absorbed into Israel. So they want to turn the Palestinian refugee crisis into a political weapon in, in American politics. That's also why we've seen a lot of hostility and talk lately about APAC. Uh, I think I agree with you. No, I think that's going to backfire on them. That is not that's just, not going to help them just morally and strategically aside. I mean, obviously, we have our thoughts there, but tactically, it's a mania. Yes. This doesn't register with voters at all. It is your fixation. You're just absolute, uh, you know, a, a complete divorce from anything that Americans actually care about. But you're just so fixated on this that you're going to make it into a national issue. They uh, hate Israel. Well, they, they hate, they hate Israel. They right. hate Jews. And I mean, it would what's... absolutely benefit Republicans to make this woman into a national figure. Look, the central fact here is it's, it's always this thing about about who cares more. And so, you know, radical Democrats who are anti-Israel want to make their opposition to Israel or American support for Israel or whatever a number one concern. And they have these voters, but their voters don't care about that. Voters who care about Israel, who vote on Israel, are all supporters of Israel. So you you polling may say this and you know AOC may win that and Rashida Tlaib may win the other thing and all of that but you make a mistake stressing an issue that 
has a wildly disproportionate support level depending on what side of the issue you're on. I mean, maybe Democrats don't, maybe there are a whole bunch of Democrats. I mean, polling suggests this that are, you know, feel that we should be even handed between Israel and the Palestinians or something like that, or don't like Israel's behavior. But it's probably 35th on the list of issues that motivate them. And for people for whom Israel is a motivating issue, that number is two, three, five, you know, is is up in the top 10. And and you then trigger um this counterreaction by uh, the Democratic majority for Israel, which is a PAC, and APAC has now actually started a PAC to fight against anti-Israel candidates. Um, uh, so, you know, you're like awakening a beast in a weird way by raising these issues. It's much better to make your way through by getting anti-Israel people into jobs in the State Department using affirmative action or something like that, or, you know, racial affirmative action or, you know, ideological affirmative action, because they can do things that aren't really visible to people, but you make them visible and, 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 and there is a, there is a reaction. Um, but the, 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 the kind of people who are, are in favor of the Nakba re- resolution, um, I think they're more concerned with doing this in their role as social media influencers um, than uh, either in respect to electoral politics or American policy. I think it's, I think they're trying to push, they're trying to wedge something into the the discussion on Israel, namely the acceptance of Palestinian historical revisionism. Yeah. It's fan service and fundraising fodder is what I think. Well, those are both true. And it's also, it's also real, it's conviction. I mean, you you can actually say that this is something that they're doing if they're doing it against their actual political interests. Although, you know, in house races, it's weird in house races. Like, you know, what 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 an individual house member says on foreign policy matters is a pretty negligible thing. You know, someone's running for office, 435 members of the house, you know, uh, People aren't voting it. The House is actually sort of almost constructed to force people to focus on local issues and not on these national questions. No one in the House ever paid the slightest attention to foreign policy until the mid middle the mid twentieth century. That was always a that was always a sort of predilection of the of the Senate. Um, you never had like a a great foreign policy figure in the House. You had a lot of great foreign policy figures in the Senate. So it is. There is some kind of ga- gamesmanship going on here, uh, ideological gamesmanship, and an, and an effort to sort of change the Democratic Party from the inside simply by replacing, uh, you know, moderate candidates with radical candidates. The most pro-Israel member of the Democratic Caucus, Elliot Engel, was uh, was in fact displaced by Jamal Bowman, uh, first-term congressman in 2020. Engel was sick. Uh, he also should have retired a year, you know, term earlier and let somebody else take his place, but he didn't do it. And he, this guy, the most pro was replaced by an anti-Israel member of Congress. And so they're just sort of following that, that playbook because 10 years down the road, maybe they can in fact build a sufficient strength in the house and in the house caucus and propagandize in such ways that they can, you know, slowly and subtly start turning the American political system against Israel. But you know, in a cl- in a close election season where you need to win as many races as you can to, I mean, Democrats aren't even going to hold the majority in the House in November. So, you know, if you're if you're trying to limit those losses, these are kind of dumb. These are dumb issues to focus on. On the other hand, if you figure that it's already gone, you can focus on anything. That's 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 the flip side of this. If you're a justice Democrat, you look at this and you say, you know what, we're we've lost. We're, we're Democrats are not going to have the majority. Let's go to town. Let's go to town. Like, you know, we're, we're not going to have power anyway. We should do what the Republicans have done and just be mischief makers the entire time in the House while they're, you know, while, the, while they're trying to run things into the ground. And speaking of the kinds of changes that we may see in November, if you want to know where the economy is going and how to think about the economy in this a terrible time in the ways in which uh, the economy and the American approach to the economy might change in November, you got to go get a copy of David Bonson's book, 
There's no free lunch, 250 Economic Truths, B-A-H-N-S-E-N of the Bonson Group, $3.5 billion under management, a money manager, non-pare, and a really interesting economic thinker. And this is just a, a really great primer to economic ideas, economic thinking, Western thought, and how faith, free markets, freedom, free speech, uh, and free assembly all connect and intertwine uh, to create human flourishing and why uh, why uh, American the American system and the capitalist system uh, are are need to be defended and upheld and promoted. And that's what you get from Bonson's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, wherever you get books, and read it and buy it and be enlightened, entertained, and elevated. And, Noah, let's talk about your bowl and branch sheets. Tell me something about your bowl and branch sheets. You're our guy with bowl and branch sheets. Bowl and branch is our second advertiser here. And we just need to know how great they are. They are great. They are my favorite sheets. They're our only sheets. We don't sleep on anything else and haven't for, I don't know, eight months, nine months. Um, at some point, they're going to break down. I'm going to have to buy new sheets. But after that, you know, I'm probably going to end up buying more Bowling Branch because they are uh, as luxurious a set of sheets as you can possibly get. So they're buttery. They're breathable. They're impossibly soft and they get softer with every wash. Would that would you agree? I would agree. And they fit. Your fitted sheet does not eject from around the mattress, uh, which often happens. And it's kind of a disorienting experience when you wake up in the morning. So say goodbye to that. Yeah. I mean, Bone Branch itself says the sheets fit the deepest of mattresses and they're labeled right with top and bottom tags. So making your bed is easier than ever. The threads are so luxurious. They're beloved by three U.S. presidents. Don't think about thread count. You want to think about the quality of the thread, the quality of the thread. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible. And that's what you get from Bolin Branch sheets. You'll immediately feel the difference. Um, and they're 100% free from toxins, no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. And a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's move on from the interesting election to uh, struck by uh, the news today, you know, the news yesterday, obviously the sad news that the um, Ukrainian fighters uh, who have been, you know, who have been holed up uh, in this gigantic power plant in Mariupol, just under unbelievable, uh, excuse me, steel manufacturing, plant, excuse me, manufacturing plant, you know, it's gigantic. Like they've been holed up there trying to hold on to it and that they're they're basically, you know, um, that 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 siege is over and the Russians have prevailed. Um, and uh, and that's that's, you know, sad news. Um, however, uh, I'm struck by just how efficient uh, Zelensky's government is and the Ukrainians are. At, at changing the subject or making sure that that is not the sole focus of the conversation these days uh, in what's been going on. They keep highlighting and pushing bad news for the Russians and making sure that the stories aren't just, they've had a real reversal here. Um, we, we get news from the Ukrainians, according to them, 28,000 Russians have died uh, in, in since the war began. I have no idea whether this is true or not. I mean, I, you know, I've no, I, I've no way of gauging it. It seems like an astoundingly high number, um, given that you know we fought in Vietnam for 12 years and lost 56 or 58,000 people. Um, but uh, it's reported, it's dealt with, it's a counterexample of what's been going on at the time of a defeat. And I think you, you once again, I, we, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating to see how a, 
you know, an, an underprepared person like Zelensky, you know, comes from show business and all of that, not only rises to the occasion, but, you know, has some unbelievable feel for how to manage the news atmosphere, which is so important in keeping up world support for his cause. I frankly cannot, I can't verify these numbers either, but I don't find them hard to believe. And I think it's, it does a a profound disservice to the Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian government to suggest that what they're managing here is a propaganda effort. They are not. They continue to win. Mariupol has fallen. Mariupol held out for nearly 80 days. Mariupol is on the border of Donbass. Mariupol should have fallen early in this campaign. It somehow managed to hold out. Meanwhile, Ukrainians repelled the advance on Kyiv all the way to the belt to Belarus. Ukrainians have repelled the advance on Kharkiv, second biggest city in the country. Ukrainian forces are now on the border with Russia, poised to advance, albeit not advancing. They have pushed back the advance of Mikolaev. They are on the borders of Kyrgyzstan, a city that fell within the first 36 hours of the invasion as as troops streamed out of occupied Crimea. Um, They're advancing towards Donetsk, which has been occupied since 2014. They're conducting counteroffensives near uh, Izium. Um, All across the board, we're seeing successful Ukrainian advances, um, which is not to say that Russia has not enjoyed its successes. Russia's pouring forces into the Donetsk 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 area in the Donbass, and they are managing to take some territory, but they have been completely unsuccessful at capturing urban centers. And where they are losing is where they can't afford to lose. I did not mean to say that the Ukrainians weren't winning where they're winning. Uh, that I, that was shorthand in some ways. Uh, part of the amazing quality of the Ukrainian war effort is that they're really good at it. They're, they're fighting at a level that nobody would have expected. Uh, they are having tactical military success that we had no reason to expect that they would display and they're winning the information war more profoundly than anyone you know that then it's just a kind of jaw-dropping fact and they're always there they're always there they're never silent Zelensky gives a speech every night to the Ukrainian people they are feeding the worldwide beast uh, of, you know, uh, needing good information, good, uh, good news uh, for you, Ukraine. They have a lot of good news to, to, um, to offer. I mean, or, you know, positive news that is positive for the Ukrainian effort, but they also know what to do when they have reversals, which again, is not anything that, you know, it's, it's only the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Um, and I just think it's a fascinating thing to watch. And yes, the most important thing is that um, they have Davided the Goliath here. I mean, in a way that, you know, if you if we were to go back and listen to our first two weeks of podcasting about this war, we were very dark. You know, I mean, it was sort of like, well, at some point the Russian, you know, the Russians are just going to lower. This is all great, but the Russians at some point are just going to when they're ready, they'll crush them. Everybody was. Everybody Um, was. And but the darkness has sort of descended on the Russian side. Uh, Igor Gherkin, who's a uh, Russian um, military official, uh, was very key, a key figure in the 2014 invasion, uh, has some leaked uh, communiques with Moscow that paint a picture of abject defeat in the Donetsk campaign. You know, so they, were, they, were, they shifted away from these two fronts, the Z front, which collapsed, that was the, the Kiev front. And then they were going to focus entirely on consolidating gains in the East. And they're saying, uh, we will not even deal out a limited defeat to the enemy in the field of battle. And it's necessary to prepare for a long-term, difficult, large-scale war. You had... Um, you know, if you watch Russian television, I mean, picture Russian, you know, news, news television and picture, you know, the, the worst of cable news and then multiply it by several fold because it is that, you know, nutty. Um, but then you've started to see some um, figures uh, like, albeit 
one who's who does this quite often sort of throws cold water on the propagandistic effort, but nevertheless, a Russian military figure who's on TV a lot delivering uh, a, this lecture to the Russian television viewing audience about the extent to which they have blown it, um, that this this campaign is is going to be a long, drawn out, profoundly bloody one, uh, and that uh, you're seeing NATO ascension uh, from these these countries, by the way, which doesn't somehow doesn't represent an existential threat to Moscow. All of a sudden, you know, the logic that we were talked to told by the realists and by the the isolationists on the right and the pro-Russian side on the left is that Russian ex- uh, NATO expansion uh, represents such a profound threat to Russian sovereignty that they have to act out. Well, all of a sudden, NATO's border with Russia is about to to balloon by several thousand kilometers, and the Kremlin says, "Ah, that's not a big deal. That's fine." So that fell by the wayside. Um, every narrative is just imploding around this war. And all of it points in one direction, which is that Moscow might be preparing the public for the prospect of outright loss, because it can't just happen. It can't just happen overnight. It has to be something that you're gradually allowed to envision and then subsequently embrace and then accept. Uh, and that could be what they're preparing the ground, the ground for. I have to say, I, I, I still find that somehow slightly unthinkable um, that 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 Putin in particular would sort of own up to a loss um, in some legitimate way, however slowly. Um, I, 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 I just can't imagine, which is why I, I a slight part of me continues to 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 worry about something extraordinary coming out of the Russian side here. Um, not as much as I had been worrying, um, but I, I, it's, it's not, it's not, that's not in the realm of the unthinkable yet for me. It isn't. I just don't understand what it would achieve strategically. And we said this last week that the use of a, a tactical nuclear weapon is not tactical if it's designed to achieve strategic purposes. It's a strategic low yield nuclear weapon. Um, but what is the, t- the strategic advantage you achieve from an unconventional weapon? Does it does it dispirit the Ukrainian resistance? No. Does it shake Western resolve? Probably not. Does it derail NATO ascension for Sweden and Finland? Definitely not. Uh, what is the upside there? I, I mean, the upside is you're saying that it would not that it that it would not. Uh, hamper ukrainian resistance and obviously that's the calculation the cal- if you, you if you do it you do it to tear the heart out of ukraine and to say yeah yeah you had your fun here are the big boys we're killing you 50,000 we're going to kill 50,000 of you all at once and don't think we won't do it again yeah and it's it you says know. but they it says we're it, in this right so yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean that the strategic calculation is that is that all the all the um, giddiness, even though obviously what's going on in Ukraine is awful and the country is being ruined and cities are being you know it, it's going to take you know years to recover from the damage that's been done and all of that. But there is a certain giddiness in the Ukrainian success thus far. And, you know, maybe it could be, maybe it could be uh, torn out of it. It's hard. I mean, I just don't, we haven't seen that from the civilian massacres in Bukha and in yeah. and around Kiev. They've only galvanized this pot, this country. And this, they we're talking about the killing fields of Europe. Transgenerational memory here is long. They reckon they remember the massacres or it's all it, every but generation. This is not has massacre. A- I mean, if, if, Abe, if we're actually talking about the use of a weapon of mass destruction. And I don't mean like a deniable weapon of mass destruction, you know, you know, a chemical something somewhere, but like an actual, you know, tactical nuke or something like that. I mean, if, if you're talking about that, then you're, then you're talking about something that hasn't happened on the planet earth for 77 years. And, and all bets would be off. Yeah. But I, I, would, I, I don't, but, but the bet that I don't think would be off is Ukrainian resolve to resist and exact revenge. But also, you know, so so let's say there is on balance no tactical gain to Putin doing this. Um, and by the way, I'm far from certain he's going to do that. I'm just saying it it it, it haunts me on some level. Um, since when has he shown 
um, the the ability to accomplish sound tactical aims throughout this. I mean, right. if it's a bad tactical idea, that that wouldn't stop him. It, right. Well, but it wouldn't just be a bad. I mean, it would be it would be the it would be the breaking of a taboo of a of a sort that I don't know remains unthinkable until it until it happens right it's all like science fictional we're having this conversation I'm saying you know well he could always do it and then it's like he could really like are you serious you know and he obviously hasn't done it yet and according to what we know about Soviet military doctrine they 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 do have the use of nuclear weapons integrated into their military doctrine so they've chosen not to you know take the playbook go to you know play eight subsection three and there's a reason for that and then the question is are things so dire that they that they that they go with something that's both insanely risky insanely destructive and in you know and and uniquely horrifying to the entire world all at once uh, in order to save face or to do, you know, to to prevail in this effort that was a misbegotten misadventure to begin with. But we just we just we, we obviously we don't know. So saying we don't know is a good thing because we talk we're on this podcast five days a week and there's a lot we don't know. We don't want you to think that we know what we don't know. And we'll be back tomorrow to talk about even less talk about things we know about even less. So for Christine, Noah, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>